Welcome back to More Than a Hospital. It's not uncommon for hospitals to have links with similar institutions in other countries. But when I heard that the Royal Brompton and Harefield Hospitals had an informal link with the French Medical Institute for Mothers and Children in Afghanistan, I wondered why a couple of hospitals in Greater London would have a relationship with somewhere more than 4,000 miles away in a war-torn and dangerous country. To find out more, I spoke to the man who instigated the programme and who clocks up more air miles to Kabul than anyone else. This is community. This is specialist. This is collaboration. This is more than. This is more than. This is more than. This is more than a hospital. With me, your host, Ollie Lurington. Like all of the surgeons at Royal Brompton and Harefield Hospitals, Julian Gare performs life-saving and life-changing work every single day. Unlike a lot of surgeons, he also dedicates months of his year to supporting cardiac surgery in Afghanistan. As a country, it's still on the government's red list as an unstable and politically charged state that has been back under Taliban control since 2021. Despite the risks, Julian still travels there at least twice a year with the support of other Brompton and Harefield colleagues. Julian trained at some of the leading cardiac surgery centres in the world, including the Broussais Hospital in Paris and the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. In this podcast, we talked about his work in the UK and Afghanistan, his charity work, and the power of the community feeling at the Brompton and Harefield hospitals. But first of all, I asked him why he'd extended an open invitation to watch surgery to a collection of artists, including Grayson Perry. Julian Gare, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So while I was doing the research for this podcast, um, one of the things I came across is that a while back, you invited a, a load of artists or you gave artists an opportunity to come into theatre and watch you doing cardiac surgery. Um, what, what was the idea behind that? Oh, hard cash, pure and simple. Um, it was actually wasn't even my idea. It was um, my... So the background is the following. My wife is an art dealer and a contemporary art dealer. And Bob Bell, who was um, chief executive until relatively recently, as you probably know, uh, dragooned me one day and asked if we could use the connections that we have in the contemporary art world to do some fundraising for the hospital. Uh, You have to understand that artists get asked for this sort of stuff all the time. People sort of don't realise that it's their work. And if you say, would you like to donate a piece of art for some charitable purpose, you're asking them to undertake a significant piece of work for nothing. So they have to kind of believe in it. That's the first thing. Uh, They have to want to do it. They are saturated with requests for it because everybody thinks that churning out a piece of art is just something you do. You just press another button and another bit comes out. Uh, And so we asked a a number of artists that we know to um, engage in that. 
and said that rather than simply, as it were, pressing the button and donating something, why not come and spend some time in the hospital? This was at Harefield. See how it works. See what makes Harefield tick. And um, and then if you have, you know, and then create a piece of work, a work of art based on that. So there were a number of artists, many of them very well known, Grayson Perry amongst them, Tracy Emin, uh, who came to the hospital and spent some time there. Grayson was particularly uh, good at it and actually came back on more than one occasion, became a sort of ambassador for the hospital. And the artwork that was donated by these artists, some of whom didn't visit the hospital but donated works of art nonetheless, was sold at an auction at Sotheby's, um, gosh, I can't even remember what year it was in. It was 2010, something like that. It was a while ago. Um, and uh, and that's what what happened. So that was, um, you know, and that, so what you will have read will have been some of the coverage that was, um, that was um, uh, in the press at around that time. Uh, charitable auctions for artistic, uh, for, for medical endeavours, artistic charity, you know, are kind of a bit stale now. And I think if you went round and asked a bunch of contemporary artists now, they would, you'd get a smack in the chops. But 10 years ago, or how long ago it was, 10, 12 years ago, it was relatively novel. And many of the artists we know well enough to call in a favour. And how how common is it to have visitors in a surgical theater was it strange for you to have people like grace and perry hanging around well we yeah i mean it, interesting enough i got into trouble for it because um many of my colleagues didn't realize that the chief executive had asked me to do it and so the usual jealousies and rivalries that pervade in any organization found their way to the fore and some um some uh, took exception to it. Um, I think the way I rationalise it, and this is how I've rationalised it subsequently, is that if anyone donates a significant sum of money to the hospital, they kind of have a right to see what they're getting for their money. And whilst we try and restrict visitors to the operating room for uh, purely professional purposes, this would be fundraising for the organization, what I would consider to be a professional purpose. Uh, so uh, it was, in my view, and indeed that of the then chief executive, completely justifiable. So talking about access to to surgery and, and seeing seeing what's happening is is one thing, but you've spent a lot of time over the last decade or so looking at access in a in a much different way when it comes to the work that you've done over in Afghanistan helping people there who might not have been able to access top level cardiac care what how did that come about i did quite a lot of my postgraduate training in france and as with anything in medicine, and this is absolutely no exception, perhaps even it's even more the case, everything we do is standing on the shoulders of giants, uh, and very little that we do is entirely original, and so because of, and necessarily so. Uh, I did quite a lot of my postgraduate training in France. Uh, my then chief was a man called Alain Carpentier, who is now sadly very old and quite frail, 
but is one of the giants of 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 our specialty and there were in the department a number of other individuals uh alain carpentier was very good at surrounding himself with uh, people of considerable talent one of whom was a man called alain deloche who was amongst other things the founder of médecins sans frontières uh which you know is perhaps one you know one of the largest medical aid charities in the world now i don't know what what the league table is, but they are, everyone will have heard of MSF. And Deloche is an extraordinary character. And he then set up, amongst other things, Médecins du Monde, and a charity called La Chaine de l'Espoir, the Chain of Hope. Uh, and the Chain of Hope was slightly different in as much, or La Chaine de l'Espoir was slightly different in as much as they don't send people into war zones. We don't, it's not about conflict medicine it's about building medical infrastructure and it comprised three components one was uh, bringing children predominantly to europe for surgery not available to them in their own countries the development of medical infrastructure in countries that don't have it and the training of doctors in countries that don't have access to it and that came about because this was all in the mid 90s where there was a coincidence of things that happened. The first was the disintegration of the Soviet Union. The second was uh, Alain Deloche uh, finding himself traveling in Vietnam, uh, a country which at that time, because of the disintegration of the Soviet Union, was having to open its doors to the West or to the wider world in order to try and develop its infrastructure. And we've got to remember, France was the ancient colonial power there, so it was quite a sensitive and difficult relationship initially but the then dean of saigon medical school or ho chi minh city medical school was a cardiologist and there was no cardiac surgery in vietnam at all at that time uh, and he wanted to set up a heart hospital and carpentier was asked if he would do it and acting through deloche as his deputy this center was set up and it worked like a charm within three years it was functioning. There was a local team who were initially operating and working under some sort of supervision from France, uh, but very soon were completely autonomous. It was absolutely the perfect storm of sort of medical infrastructure development in emerging markets. You know, you 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 do something, it works, and very soon the guys locally are training and no longer need you. And we thought, and I was part of that at that time, and this was you know, when I was still a, a senior trainee, and we thought, oh, we know how to do this now. This is easy. Uh, uh, without taking account of the fact that um, there are unique things in Vietnam that made that a success. We tried to repeat it, for example, in Cambodia, and it wasn't such a success. Uh, it still limps on, but it was not the shining success that the Vietnamese uh, endeavor was. And it's been repeated in a variety of other places. And one day I was working in Vietnam, in Cambodia, and Deloche arrived in town, just flew in. We didn't know. And that was sort of typical of him. And so... Um, we were having dinner together that night. This must have been in 2005 or thereabouts. And uh, he said, oh, you know what? I, I can really see you in Kabul. 
and I thought he was insane. Um, actually, I knew he was insane, but I thought this was just another manifestation of his insanity. Uh, and um, and I didn't really think any more about it. And then, of course, but with, you know, these guys are, are brilliant, and they're also transactional. And we were operating in the francophone world substantially, uh, and I happened to be also anglophone. And Deloche knew that Afghanistan was always going to be essentially Anglophone. So they needed somebody who was Anglophone to, um, And so that's how it became my particular. But there are other projects that have been Senegal, Ivory Coast, uh, Mali, uh, Mozambique. You know, I mean, there's a bunch of them. So in that respect, this hospital was just one of a number of projects undertaken by La Chaine de l'Espoir, um, and uh, each of them has its own unique um, components. The initiative for the, for, the, for the Afghan project came from a very well-known French journalist called Marine Jacquemin, who was covering the war in, in, in Afghanistan for a long time. And it was initially conceived as a maternity unit, which is why it's called the French Mother and Children's Hospital. And then it expanded and it became uh, a tertiary care hospital. And I think it's fair to say that the cardiac surgical component of it was the flagship of this big hospital, which is the sort of reference center in Kabul. And up to the point just before the pandemic, there was an, an Afghan head of department Najibullah Bino is a good buddy of mine who was an iconic figure in Afghanistan. Uh, and he was running the department. He was a, trained in France as a cardiac surgeon. And they were doing a lot of surgery, 600 odd cases a year, with outcomes that would be far from embarrassing anywhere in the world. Uh, and when you bear in mind the, the, the difficulties of the extreme poverty and comorbidity, as we call it, that patients coming for surgery in Afghanistan have, that was pretty impressive. And what, just just so that people understand this properly, what, what do you mean by comorbidities? So, you know, patients you know, who come to surgery in Afghanistan are frequently malnourished, are frequently have coming present, presenting at a stage in their illness where it is so far advanced that the risk of surgery are very considerable, and so on and so on. And so they're the things that increase the hazard of surgery. Uh, but it was going pretty well, and we had trainees coming through. The hospital is right next door to, Af to Kabul University, which still trains high-caliber medical graduates. Uh, but there was, there's been a brain drain in Afghanistan since forever, uh, and it's got immeasurably worse as the war became more and more obviously uh, futile and particularly when the Taliban returned to power in 2021 as they did and I mean Afghanistan is is as a place it's not a place that that it wouldn't be your top holiday destination let's let's put it that way what is it that keeps you going back to the country and that that kind of gets you over those reservations? Don't know. Oh, I think, well, the personal safety issue is one that you just sort of make peace with when your own experience of something 
tells you that perhaps what one reads in the newspapers, hears in the press, is not entirely representative of the whole thing. There have been times when I've been to Afghanistan and felt un, not unsafe, but certainly been aware of the tension in the city. Whereas now you see a city that is, you know, bustling and peace, you know, and it, it feels quite sort of relaxed now. So I think in that respect, um, I've sort of, you know, those are the things that contribute towards making peace. But also, you know, I've committed myself to this project. And um, it's kind of a th in sickness and in health commitment. And um, uh, so I didn't want to, you know, I felt, you know, I know these guys. I know all of the team there. And um, I'd given a commitment to it and felt I should honour that, if at all possible. Now, there were times when it wasn't possible, through the pandemic, for example, you, you know, couldn't travel. And then in the immediate aftermath of, of Taliban returning, uh, we didn't quite know what was going to happen. And every time I go there, I expect to see, you know, familiar faces missing because people have, you know, because it's, it's one thing to go and visit for 10 days or so. But if, for example, you were a female doctor working in Afghanistan, uh, and somebody offers you the opportunity to go and work somewhere else, you have to have a pretty compelling reason to stay behind. I mean, the remarkable thing is that people are staying behind and still, you know, and they're still there and they're still committed to it. And what what do you do? What does a, a sort of a classic trip out there look like? So I usually travel with an anaesthetist and an intensive care nurse. Um, the team that travels with us depends you know, where you're going and what you need to do when you get there. There are times, uh, there are projects I'm involved in elsewhere in the world where we take a whole team of anaesthetists, perfusionists, nurses, etc., etc. But there's a lot of staff there already, and they're good, you know, they're good people. So I travel with an anaesthetist and an intensive care nurse. I usually go out a day or two ahead of them and um, see patients in clinic and sort of try and get things moving. And then when they arrive, we go to work. Uh, and we go to work on the stuff that the team locally wants us to help them with. So that is cases of a particular complexity or so on. And so we sort of, because you know, they're while we're not there, they're operating away and doing plenty of work. Uh, but things that they particularly want our help with, we sort of store them up for the week or so that we'll be there. So if I travel out on a Wednesday, typically the other guys will fly out a day or two later and we operate every day for the following through the following week and then come back the following weekend. That's a busy schedule, though, isn't it? And we get a lot of work done. We get a lot of work done, far more work than you can get done in the same facilities and time frame in the National Health Service, I can assure you, because we're not encumbered by some of the bureaucracy that um, plagues us here. And you were you were talking about the the pandemic and the, the obviously the kind of change of control in Afghanistan. Um, how did the pandemic affect the work? over in Afghanistan, because obviously it, it affected every health service. It almost completely came to a stop, as it did, frankly, here. Um, but we maintained an emergency service. They were unable to do it. 
in Afghanistan, of course, you know, there's no such thing as lockdown and furlough. Um, you know, you eat tonight what you earned earlier in the same day. So there was no question that people would be able to uh, stop work, stay home or any of these things. Um, and of course, the hospital services are substantially overwhelmed at the best of times. And um, so I don't suppose anyone really has any idea what the impact of COVID would have been on on um, on the, pop, the, the population. It's probably impossible to work out, but suffice it to say, it was probably not good. And how much work has it taken to get the service back up to, to where it was when you left it? How much have you had to put into reestablishing what you've been doing? Me personally, not a great deal, honestly because the people there are in, extremely committed to it. And as soon as they were able to do it, they, they went back to work. Uh, there's a shortage of trainees, some of whom have fled the country. Uh, there's a, the usual financial constraints. Uh, and um, it's, you know, but they're very committed and they're very, you know, so, I, you know, I think honestly, our presence is is most. I mean, yes, it's to do with providing direction and help with work that they find, you know that is not you know, that they want us to help them with. But it's as much as anything to make them feel that they're not working in isolation. And actually, the trust has been incredibly supportive of that. The team in Kabul can dial into our MDT meetings. Our, you know, our multidisciplinary meetings and they can access the educational material online that others would have to pay for. They can access it for free. And don't forget, we learn too. You know, I learn a lot from going to Afghanistan. It's not it's not entirely one way traffic. And it's not it's not just Afghanistan for you either. You you've experienced the the healthcare systems and and all sorts of other things in in other countries around around the world. What what are the biggest things that you take away from from seeing how how healthcare runs or or how your particular field is is kind of carried out? I suppose in other countries. I think we grow up, particularly in the English-speaking first world economies, the global north, we grow up with a notion of exceptionalism, which is at best slightly irritating and at worst frankly ignorant. So, you know, when I went to work in France as a trainee, one of somebody at Harefield Hospital looked up to me and said, oh, really? Cardiac surgery in France? Wow. Didn't know they sort of did it there, you know? Um, we have a notion in this country, in the United Kingdom, that, you know, Healthcare free at the point of delivery, publicly funded, is a uniquely British invention, as though the rest of Europe, Australasia, parts of Asia, even parts of South America aren't doing the same thing. So I think the important thing is there are lots of ways to skin the cat. 
and many of the preconceived notions that we have about our own and others' health systems need to be carefully scrutinized and 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 verified, you know, trust but verify, as Ronald Reagan said, because the reality is that what we do is of such fundamental importance in some ways that it's it's too hard to value it. And I think that's um, that's important. So, you know, free healthcare as access to healthcare is what matters, not how your system functions. Or rather, or how it's structured, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's which model of healthcare you use, as long as you ensure access. What what other things should should we aspire to learn from other other countries' healthcare systems? This isn't one question within another within an otherwise thirty forty minute podcast. That's a PhD thesis. And, and you know, the notion that we don't, or, or, you know, it would be a lot easier to make a list of the things that we don't need to learn because there's manifestly so much. But um, I think there are good things. There, there are, if we're thinking specifically about the health service in this country, which unless, you know, in, in the United Kingdom, you know, unless you've been living on another planet, um, you will be aware is under a certain amount of strain at the moment. I, I you know, it, it, if we think back to the pandemic, I think that the way in which our healthcare is centralised had an impressive advantage during the pandemic because the output in terms of high quality multi centre research rapidly organized that delivered results with, with with answers that were affordable and effective was truly impressive and i think that's a benefit of our centralized health system the list of disadvantages to our massively centralized health system is a phd thesis in its own right so one of the things that you've done over here is you founded a charity called the aortic center trust what what was the the reason behind that why is why was it an important thing for you to to build well first of all i was again you know acknowledging the 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 standing on the shoulders of giants i'm one of the founders of this organization and the, the the simple truth is that my colleague, Nick Cheshire, who is not just a colleague, but a friend and an extremely distinguished uh, colleague, um, received a donation from a patient. And it was a not insubstantial sum of money. And we looked into what we would do with that money and whether we, as it were, blow it on a project, you know, a doubtless worthy and, and you know, help, you know, a significant contribution, or whether we use it to seed something a little bit bigger. And we decided to do the latter, which is why we set up this foundation. And it was really, we're both active working in aortic surgery. Aortic surgery, we think, is a somewhat neglected, um, a somewhat neglected area. Everyone, you know, knows where their prostate is or, you know, when their breast cancer screening is due. But 
you know, most people would say a you know sort of uh, when you talk to them about their aorta, and you know, aortic diseases are challenging to treat and and often undetected. So we thought there was a gap there. And um, so we set up this foundation and we used the money from this donor, uh, which was a significant sum of money. We did the rounds of artists again and raised some money um, from an auction. And we have you know, a fund now with which we are doing a number of things, one of which is to uh, embark, we're about to embark on a campaign uh, to increase awareness of uh, aortic screening services, specifically targeting postcodes or areas of the country where the uptake of this free service is is, no, is notably poor. And of course, that has a lot to do with, uh, with economics. Um, uh, we have sponsored a... Uh, a scholarship with the national body that oversees cardiac surgery and, and training in this country to enable people to go, you know, young, either people at the end of their training or newly appointed consultants to go and visit um, centers of excellence, be it elsewhere in Europe or in, the, in North America or wherever, frankly. And that could be one individual going for, say, a year to another 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 center or you know a team traveling to go for a, a matter of a few weeks to observe you know a particular procedure or a particular technique so so that's what that is about um it's extraordinary in a way to have been a part of that in a sense you know it never crossed my mind what were the mechanics of of setting up websites and so on and so on and the way that People publicize such causes now, and you know the money trickles in, and we're doing our best to make good use of it. I, having having been in a position where I founded a charity myself years and years ago, um, it, it, it's not an easy thing to do. But there is something immensely satisfying about um, that feeling of of kind of kicking off something new and. Uh, and making a difference with it. Yeah. And, and you know, and just the surprise. One day I took a phone call from a solicitor in Bristol, ringing on behalf of, of the widow of a man whom I'd never heard of, wanting to know if we would be willing, prepared to accept a donation, which was a five-figure sum of money. I said, what, you think? You really think? You know, you don't need to ask. You know, and, and, and that kind of blows you away a guy you've never heard of for reasons that are entirely personal to him leaves a sum of money to you based on you'll never know necessarily but i think it's it's an important recognition of of the work that you do that someone would be prepared to do that because it means they know they know who you are and they know that that you can use the money to good effect well we do our best we do our best. We do our best. It's actually surprisingly difficult to give away money. Interestingly, it's not. It's not always easy. Yeah, uh, uh, you're you're right. It it's a deceptively difficult thing to do in a in a kind of robust manner. 
Um, just finally, um, a big part of what we're trying to do with this podcast is to to explore the community of of the Brompton and Harefield hospitals and the way that there, there's something about it that feels unique to me. And I was I was particularly struck again going back to the research that we were doing for for this chat. There was a a story that you related in a, a, an article. I think it was in the the Guardian uh, a, a good good number of years ago. But you were talking about one particular patient who was a a forty year old mother of two who had emergency surgery unexpected based on on the condition she was in when she was admitted um and it lasted from midday on a monday to 5 a.m the following morning so that's what 17 hours in total and you mentioned that there were five consultants involved altogether some of whom weren't even on duty at the time and I'm guessing there were a lot more members of of the wider surgical team. What is it that forges the kind of spirit that that togetherness that makes people willing to work through the night and willing to work when actually it's not it's not their shift or or they're not on duty? What what is it about your teams? that make that sort of thing happen? Well, it doesn't always happen. That's the first thing. But there is a level of commitment, engagement and community, which I think is impressive in both Harefield and the Brompton. They're small hospitals. uh, So there's a a relatively homogenous, cohesive community. Uh, we don't have accident and emergency departments. We are actually technically the sort of rather outmoded thing, which is a single specialty hospital, which is you know, supposedly not what uh, what uh, healthcare is about nowadays. Um, you know, I can identify nurses, for example, in both the Brompton and Harefield who've been there. For as you know, since I came here as a senior house officer in 1984, and I've been and gone in those times and worked elsewhere, but there are people there who've worked in this same organization now for almost as long as I've been a doctor, and that is unusual, I think. That is unusual. Um, and Harefield has its own, you know, Harefield and the Brompton are very different. Uh, they have their own strengths and weaknesses. Um, uh, but one thing they have is a sense of their place in the community that they serve and a sense of community within the organisation. Thank you so much for taking the time to to join us today. Um, it's It's been fascinating talking to you and hearing about the work that you do. I no idea how you fit all of it in um, but but it's been great to talk to you it's very nice to speak to you ollie i know that your attachment to this organization has a long history um, and i'm glad to see you in in good in good heart i really enjoyed that conversation with julian i think what struck me was his humility in 
not necessarily recognizing the significance of the work that he does in Afghanistan. It's still a country that the UK government doesn't recommend travel to. And so I think the the fact that he's willing to go there and 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 his colleagues are willing to go there, I think it shows a real passion for their work and for wanting to help make a difference to people's lives. And it doesn't matter where they're practicing their their craft and where they're taking their expertise. Their passion is in helping people. And I think that's a big part of this sense of this unique sense of community within the hospitals. And it was really lovely to hear that he recognizes that as well, that it's not just that sense that that I get and that you might get from from the outside, that it's recognized within the hospitals as well. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. There are plenty more coming down the line. So make sure that you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can rate and leave a review, that makes a massive difference for us in terms of helping people discover the podcast and and hear the stories that we're trying to share. Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time.